Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Gordon S., Kelly M., and Kent P. On the show today is Terry Papineau, a new guest. Terry is co-founder of TLP Enterprises, an individual investor, a uranium market investor enthusiast, and a nuclear energy advocate. You can connect with Terry by following him via Twitter, at Terry Papineau 2. Terry, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here, Andrew. Thanks for inviting me. Well, Terry, uh, tell us where you're talking to us from and a little bit on your background and uh, work. Sure, thanks. Uh, I'm actually uh, in Albany, Ontario. Um, there's a beautiful river that runs here called the French River. And uh, we're lucky enough to um, share a cottage here, a family cottage. And uh, I'm just uh, loving it here in my little nature paradise, being able to do all of the things I really enjoy doing, which are spending time in the outdoors and uh, doing research uh, on my investments. And uh, at the present time, I'm currently uh, retired, uh, just enjoying the retired life, doing the things that I want to do. Uh, my wife and I are lucky enough to have um, built up a nice uh, network of uh, contacts and and close friends in in, uh, in the educational uh, side of things. And uh, so we do a bit of contract work um, while we're retired, so we can pick and choose what we like to do. But mostly uh, my career uh, was in the educational field where I started as a teacher and uh, had many different positions in the educational field. Uh, where I, where I um, finished my career as a superintendent for the Sudbury Catholic District School Board, and I also uh, during that period, during my, uh, you know, my in the past, I, I also went into the financial planning uh, business where um, I was there for about uh, five six years, and uh, then I returned to education. So uh, that sort of gave me a really good uh, base and foundation for uh, for a curiosity to want to learn more about investments and and uh, and investing uh, directly by myself. So here I am now with a bit of time on my hands and uh, looking after our family portfolio. Well, that sounds pretty good. Make your select investments, spend your time on that, enjoy the outdoors. I suspect from some of the photos I've seen, it's pretty beautiful there. And of course, uh, being selective with your consulting work, what a great setup that is. Take us back here, Terry, for a sec. And I know it's it's been a number of years, but what sparked your interest in uranium? When did that happen? And then what got you involved? It's a good question, Andrew. So I guess to be able to answer that question, I have to explain, you know, my investing style. Uh, and uh, so I, I, you know, I'm kind of a, a Warren Buffett disciple where you want to try to find value that uh, that's there, but just hasn't been recognized yet. And uh, when I was in the financial business, uh, that's what I was trying to do for my clients, uh, try to find, you know, uh, certain areas or sectors that, uh, that, you know, there was value there, but it wasn't reflected. So that's the style that I adopted for myself. And I guess at the same time, <clears throat> I was able to recognize where, where, uh, uh, value is overinflated. 
Um, so just to give you an example, at the end of the 1990s, there was the dot-com, like the technology bubble. I remember that vividly. Uh, I was in the financial pl uh, planning business at, at that time. And, uh, you know, just had people knock on my door saying, can you put me in a, you know, in a technology fund? And, and I actually refused to do that for a certain for a certain clients. But just to go back to, to, to the value uh, proposition. So try to look for something that uh, that hasn't been recognized yet. And uh, I was, you know, uh, 2016, <clears throat> I was watching uh, Bloomberg News and, and there was a an analyst uh, from a, a big uh, firm that was talking about chemical and how chemical, you know, was just one of the best run companies in the world. They had just the best assets in the world. But for some reason, you know, the uranium sector was in the doldrums and uh, there was just like, you know, there was no, the value of that company had just plummeted. So that got my curiosity peaked in 2016. And uh, so I started doing a lot of research on chemical on the uranium sector, I had no clue about, you know, the spot market, the term market, uh, you know, conversion, enrichment, fabrication, none of that. Uh, just just started, you know, trying to get, you know, put, get my hands on any piece of information I could find. And at that time, <clears throat> there wasn't a lot that, you know, the chemical had a lot of information on their website. Uh, you had the indi individual uranium companies that had information presentations on their website. They were kind of all singing the same song. But I mean, you know, you need to look at objective sort of, uh, you know, third party uh, information because a lot of companies will want to uh, pump their own their own song and, and sing their own song. So um, so it was kind of difficult at the beginning. And then uh slowly but surely a bit of information started creeping through we had people like mike alkin that were talking about it nick hodge uh, uh you know on twitter john quakes uh yourself andrew started putting out videos so th that became sort of my source of information and i quickly realized that there was uh what mike alkin called you know an asymmetrical uh investment proposition here where uh, the, the, the downside was pretty, pretty limited and the upside was just uh, huge. And uh, I just became really hooked on it. And uh, what I did is I, I reached out to a few people. Uh, one of them is my cousin, Chris Bure, uh, who's a, a pretty smart guy. And, uh, you know, just you need people to bounce your ideas off because, you know, it's pretty easy to convince yourself that you're right. So you need you need people to also to be able to you know set your head straight when you're uh, you get drunk with your own wine. So um, so we've, I've got a nice little community of, of friends and family and, and people I trust that we share uh, information on, on uranium, and uh, you know uh, it's just looking better and better every day. Do you still have Cameco today? That's a good question as well. No, I don't. You know, at that time, I started with looking at Chemical, bought shares. Chemical was the first company I, I purchased. Then I, I looked at other companies and started buying into other companies. And, you know, someone said, you can't kiss all the pretty girls at the dance. Uh, and I really like that that uh, that saying. So I, I, I had built up, uh, I, I think I had 21 positions and they were all uranium companies. 
And I wanted to be diversified, not only in Canada, but in the US and in Africa. It was difficult for me to buy shares on the uh, Australian stock exchange. So I don't have any, any of those companies. But um, what I started to do last fall is I started to look at, uh, you know, the, at first I wanted to, to take, you know, uh, safer positions, uh, you know, bigger companies. Uh, and then um, as the conditions in uranium got better and better and better, and as we were sort of slowly moving out of the bear market, going into the bull market, I started, uh, first of all, downsizing my portfolio uh, because 21 companies was a lot of companies to monitor. And uh, so I, I downsized the portfolio and I also changed the focus. I focused mostly, the majority of my portfolio now is on juniors and uh, a few developers, but mostly juniors. And the reason for that is because I think that these companies have survived a, just a very difficult, long, prolonged bear market. They were able to survive, uh, raise the cash they needed to you know, keep the lights on. And so I think that the risk of these companies basically going bankrupt or disappearing are, are, are getting less and less as we, as we move forward in the future. Uh, you know, with the bull market, now there's more interest in uranium in this sector. So these juniors are getting some attention now. When I look at the torque that they can give me on the upside versus the limited downside risk, I shifted most of my portfolio into juniors. Well, Terry, first, I've got to tell you, I'm disappointed that you don't have any ASX listed stocks. Yeah, I know. <laughs> my trading platform, and, it, you know, I could open another trading platform, but I just said, you know, I've got, I've got enough right now. I'll, I'll stick to what I have. It's still silly. There's a lot of people, even in the U.S. and in Canada, that the platforms still don't allow uh, you to have ASX stocks. And I just think it's silly. I mean, there are a few. And then, of course, there's lots of other ways, like going and starting up your own company and coming in as an institution, which gives you so much more access over an individual account. The more I look at this and the more time we've spent here, and it's been a long time, is that the ASX listed stocks, uh, boy, you got to have some exposure to ASX in this market yeah. because it's part of the thesis. It has to be that you have some ASX listed stocks. There is a little bit of OTC access. It certainly makes a lot of sense, I think. And ASX, as you know, when it comes to the mining sector, junior mining sector, there's really two capitals and it's Perth and it's Vancouver. But back to the early days, I certainly remember the 2016 time period. Uh, we were spending a fair amount of time in 2016 looking at the sector. We started writing our initial report on the sector in late 16. We had like, I want to say it's like two uranium companies at the time, maybe three. And then, you know, we started pretty heavy lifting on the research side in 2016. And then there was that early pop in 2016, late in the year. And I remember all the stocks went up pretty substantially in a short time frame. And I remember one company, Summit Resources in Australia, that just exploded during early 2017. I specifically remember that time frame because I actually had the stock personally. And then, of course, right around that time, Mike Alkin came out and did a lot of talking and presentations right around that time. And some of the early days with some of the early initial people that were really became bullish on the sector. And... Uh, you know, you moved out of some of the majors and some of these bigger players and came down the food chain. That's important to point out because a lot of people, when they come into the sector, that's where they start. Like it's kind of the gateway drug. They get into the majors, uh, maybe the physical funds, they play it safe, and then they start to figure out more. And 
I think that happens naturally to some degree, but I think as your knowledge level and your certainty level improve on the thesis for uranium, that you really start coming down the food chain and you start diving into really what I see as the meat of the sector, what I like to call going for the throat of the performance profile. So I think that makes sense as well, but uh, certainly some good times. Well, let's come back to uranium in a moment, but why do you like nuclear power? This is interesting. Um, when they started coming out with electric vehicles and people started getting excited about, uh, about electric vehicles, and I'm talking probably, I don't know, at least 10 years ago, uh, maybe even more, like I'm talking about the first electric vehicles and people were saying, wow, this is going to change the quality of, of the air and it's going to it's going to reduce carbon emissions. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that may be true, but how the hell are we going to get the electricity? Like if we're going to be adding all of these devices and, and huge electricity consumers and so if we're going to increase our consumption of electricity we need to generate that electricity somehow so you know i i knew about uh, nuclear reactors i knew about hydroelectric dams that's uh, where i'm from there's there are a few hydroelectric dams that are generating power so so i know about those two which are um you know probably the the least carbon emitting um ways of generating electricity but you know, then I knew about these coal fire plants and I knew about uh, natural gas and I knew that we wanted to build out renewables. But um, as part of my job, uh, I also got to travel to Asia uh, quite a few times. I, I went to China, I went to uh, Vietnam and funny, I was talking about this with a friend yesterday. And uh, going to Vietnam from Canada, there's no direct flight. So you have to land in Hong Kong or uh, in um, in South Korea, in Seoul, uh, but also just going to China. And I, I've been to probably 14 or 15 uh, cities throughout all kinds of regions in, in China. And it is just unbelievable the amount of air pollution that is in Asia. It's like the first time I was there in 2015, I knew there was air pollution there, but uh, my wife was with me and we were just not prepared at how awful this problem is. So, you know, they're generating most a lot of their power through coal, which, which and a lot of the houses, especially in, in the rural areas where the farmers are in China, they're still heating their houses with coal. So China, you know, I've been watching the news quite a bit recently and people are talking about China, you know, how can Kerry convince China to, to act on, China's acting on their air pollution problem. They're building nuclear reactors. And uh, when you have people like Mike Schellenberger that, you know, used to be uh, all for renewables and, and coming out with uh, completely 180 degrees saying, you know, uh, no, the, the answer is nuclear. And uh, I was watching Michael Moore's uh, um, documentary. I can't remember the name of it, where he's talking. The only thing that Michael Moore didn't do is because he's probably anti-nuclear. He exposed the truth about renewables, that re renewables uh, can't provide 24-7 baseload power. They need something that you can turn on real quick. So the oil and gas industry is supporting renewables because they're, they're building the natural gas plants that you could fire up. And, you know, natural gas emits carbon. To me, you, you, and when you look at, I've flown a lot in my life. And, and uh, 
So now from Sudbury to Toronto, they installed a, a big uh, windmill farm right on the banks of Georgian Bay here. And um, so when you fly over that, it's unbelievable the amount of land that's needed to install these, these wind farms. And it's unbelievable to see the amount of land to install the, uh, the solar panels. And when you look at the lifespan of solar panels, when you look at all of the materials that they use to make the solar panels, what are they going to do when these solar panels are done? Will they be able to uh, recuperate, recycle some of these materials? I don't know. I hope so. But uh, these are going to take up some space in a landfill somewhere. Uh, you know, the, the same thing with the with the uh, wind farms. So when you look at the amount of energy that and the density of the energy of, of nuclear reactors and uranium, the amount of electricity that they generate compared to their carbon emissions, compared to uh, you know the accidents that may have occurred, uh, compared to the land that they actually need to take up to be able to build their plant. When you compare that to any other way of generating electricity, it's just the most efficient we have. It's the safest, cleanest, most efficient we have. So, uh, and, and I'm really happy to see that in that same time period of, you know, when I start to look at uranium, that uh, I've, I'm truly seeing a sentiment shift from, you know, we're pro-nuclear now and people are, are figuring it out now that, you know, renewables, they're a supplement. They're not baseload 24-7. You need nuclear to provide your baseload 24-7. Uh, when you look at you know, they, they build the plants for 40 years, they're getting extended to 60 years, to 80 years, they're safe, they're clean. That's why I like uh, nuclear power. Yeah, look, NRC is looking at 100-year uh, licenses, extensions, etc. We know that the new stuff is 60, 80-year first-time license. The conversation about the land use, the recycle, the waste, the maintenance, all of that factored in i can tell you that's not considered in the total cost for things like wind and solar it's just silly there is a, a prominent proponent of wind power solar you know soft anti-nuclear and what i mean by soft is they're not you know just out there pounding the table against it like oh we're going to stack the solar panels or they're going to be stackable or some kind of an excuse for land footprint silly ridiculous and the storage of batteries, so you know, trying to store this and make it become baseload via big battery storage is is just another silly thought. The day you can use like a mouse pad as a solar panel, that's the problem with things like solar is you need that huge surface area to be able to absorb that power. The whole thing is just, man, it's silly. What people often just forget about, and I know this is futuristic type stuff, but Nuclear propulsion. I mean, you're not going to get to other planets using wind and solar panel. Right. You know, people are starting to realize that. I mean, look, you can't sink a submarine down to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean and be able to fuel it for two right. years at the bottom of the ocean. Now, uh, nuclear offers all that. And there's something else that I'd like to add to the to the anti-nuclear people out there. Uh, listen, if 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 mankind can invent, uh, you know, a, a, a more efficient way of generating power. Fine, I'm all for it. Let's keep let's keep doing the research. But right now, it's 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 the best we have, and I think that like I you know I'm I'm old an older guy. I'm, I'm retired now, 
But I remember in the 1970s, Andrew, and I think that's what a lot of uh, the new generation and, and you know, maybe anti-nuclear people have forgotten. They've forgotten that before nuclear, in Europe, in France, in England, and in the United States, you know, the air quality was the same as it is in China right now. Uh, because, you know, power is, was still generated through coal. And, uh, you know, in the United States, you had the larger cities, especially uh, Los Angeles and, and New York and, and, and in Europe, London and Paris, like the air quality was absolutely awful before they started building nuclear reactors. And now, you know, we can look up at the sky and see a beautiful blue sky almost anywhere in North America and almost anywhere in, in Germany, not Germany, sorry, in Europe. Whereas in China, it's rare. It's a lot of times you can't see the sky because of the smog. You know, we have nuclear to thank for that. And a lot of people take it for granted and have forgotten that fact. When you get lazy, fat, dumb, and happy, you start to forget some of the basics <laughs> and you're not reminded. And when you do get reminded, it's a slap in the face. And I think COVID to some degree has reminded people to wake up. There's certain things in life that matter much more than trying to figure out, I don't even call them sophisticated, degraded conversations that occur in some places around the world, not in every place, but certainly in some places that don't have anything better to do, yeah. but to want to complain. And right. I won't go any further than that, but I can tell you it's laughable. But back to the, the solar and wind, I don't mean to pick on it too much here. And I would just appreciate if anybody wants to challenge me here, please do. But essentially it's something like 65 square miles you need of solar to basically equate to one gigawatt nuclear power plant, probably a 50 acre campus more or less. But when you consider that fact, but let's just assume you had 65 square miles of flat ground. When you figure in the uptime, let's say the wind blows at night and the solar panels in the day work you know, with the sun, right? To actually get that full uptime, it's actually more than the 65 square miles. And that doesn't assume the storage and, and everything else you have to do with these projects. That alone just goes to tell you how pathetically inefficient it is. It's like you and I having this conversation. Just imagine if our routers and our homes or in our offices only worked like, you know, 30%, 40% of the time. I mean, you know how frustrating that would be? People are waking up to it. You mentioned earlier, there's this big change. And you're absolutely right, because you were around early on in 2016, 2017 versus today. You're absolutely correct. The sentiment has changed. And this is from a position of not just being pro-nuclear, but we've actually seen people come out of the closet and say, you know, actually, yeah, this is actually pretty smart. People are starting to warm up to the fact that it does work much better and that the three accidents that have occurred in the history of commercial nuclear power is certainly tolerable. And it's not as bad as people thought. It's certainly sad to have these types of things, but when you add up all the deaths and injuries and all the indirect impacts from pollution from all these other forms of energy, it doesn't even compare, Terry. And that's where people have completely missed the boat on nuclear. But you know, it's also like, I mean, you don't know what you don't know, right? So a lot of people like to say what, you know, what they think without really, uh, going really doing doing some research on, on the subject and and you know like I, I look at the simpsons you know it was such a popular show well i'll bet you a lot of people have made up their minds about nuclear from what they saw in the simpsons 
So what, when you look at, like, I, I'm really excited about nuclear because small modular reactors, I, I think there's going to be so many applications for those. You know, like my wife and I like to travel. We, we spent a lot of uh, two months in Hawaii in, uh, last January and February. And I'm, I'm, I'm on this beautiful island and I'm going, OK, how do they generate their power here? So they have uh, uh, windmills, but it, I, like, it looks as though most of the power there is generated from, uh, from gas. So, you know, you can have a, a, an island that installs a couple small modular reactors and that's it. You're done. Uh, no more carbon emissions. Uh, this thing is going to run for I don't know how long. I think, you know, the future is really bright for nuclear and for uranium investing. Yeah, look, and I'm a big fan of further research. You know, if, if someday we can harness fusion power on a commercial scale and it works, that's fantastic. I don't think that happens for a long time. Even with all of this thought process that with tech and we're accelerating our ability to refine technology and discover new things, et cetera, you know, that's all fine yeah. and dandy. But we're also very basic creatures and that we also are adverse to change most of the time. I mean, just imagine, you know, we have troubles being able to move to other places or to get outside of our comfort zone. And so I think mm -hmm. to some degree there is a slow transition. I mean, look, coal is still a major, a major power source and we've been negative, you know, as far as coal power goes, people have been trying to get off coal power for decades, for decades. And yet it still represents a massive amount of baseload. Just imagine how long it takes to move off of that. And so yeah. for a place like, the Far East Caribbean and other island nations, small modular reactors, if they can be done. And again, I challenge all the people out there that are funding this and all the, the organizations that are building out and trying to license these SMRs. And I hope someone gets there and puts one of these into uh, operation. It would be such a game changer for some of these nations that constantly get hit by hurricanes that need underground power grids have plants that are basically sitting underground like SMRs could be, it would be such a game changer for some of these countries. Plus, they're scalable, cheaper. And once you roll them out, these countries can finance plant yeah. sizes that work good for them. I really would like to see the industry actually get there. There's a lot of negativity about it. It'll never happen. And it's possible. If we can start to deploy these, um, I think that makes a lot of sense. And you know, also on the perception, you brought up another point that irrespective of perception out there in the public, you're seeing governments roll out nuclear around the world, irrespective of what the public thinks. And that may not be so popular in places like the US, but I can tell you that irrespective of a popular opinion, these governments are still rolling this stuff out. You look at China, look at Russia as the lead exporting nations. Uh, this is happening, whether you like it or not. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great point because oftentimes I think in North America, we think that uh, we're the center of the world, but in terms of population size, we're not. <laughs> Asia is where it's happening. In China, India, I mean, those two countries alone make up a quarter of the world population, if not a third. And they're getting, they're fully behind nuclear power generation. And they've, they've recognized that you know, and these are uh, maybe not uh, China so much, but I mean, India and, and other Asian countries, in some instances, uh, not electricity is not available everywhere. So, but, you know, people want access to electricity. And so how do you, how do you deliver that access uh, in, in a responsible manner uh, without uh, increasing your carbon emissions? Like, 
I mean, uh, baseload, right now, there is only one true solution, and it's nuclear. And with regards to your your uh, your comment on small modular reactors, I, I actually believe it, it will happen. Uh, in Canada, we've got government support behind it. Uh, so the Canadian government is is really uh, keen on on finding a, a technology and developing a technology that works. So you know, imagine like the, for example, we've got uh, a project here in in uh, northwestern uh, Ontario, the Ring of Fire, where there's massive mineral deposits, and uh, but a huge challenge to be able to mine those deposits. Uh, one of them is being able to generate the power. So. You know, you, you could design a small modular reactor that, that you know, will be able to meet the needs of that mining operation. I, I think there's so much potential. So I, I actually think that small modular reactors will see the light of day in the future. I think they'll be able to, they'll find a technology that works. You know what I know. They have the technology. It works yeah. great. Just take the same crap they've been using in the submarines for the last 60 years. More than that, I'm sorry. But just take the old conventional PWR out and throw that on land. Yeah. It's very simple, straightforward. It's already right. there. There's, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. If you want to get yeah. sophisticated, let's do that after we've mastered, as I've said before, after we've mastered nuclear power, not only in the West, but elsewhere, then we can start to refine and come up with better things. But let's first get there. In my opinion, it's about you know crawling and then obviously walking and then running. And so- That's right. People talk about, well, you know, it's uneconomical here and there. You know, look, it is generally uneconomic in the West, but look at this. It's still being used and they're still being built elsewhere much, much, much more cost effective. So that points a finger at the red tape bureaucracy that has caused these high cost overruns and really silliness with regards to economics. And then also you have to compare apples to apples. You can't take, Terry to wind and solar and talk about their competitiveness when they're being subsidized, one. And two, the total cost, the total cost is not being considered in the manufacturing, the material extraction, the maintenance, the cycle component replacements, the life cycle, the waste cycle, cradle to grave, if you will, all of that's not factored in. And when you factor that in, you know, this stuff isn't so attractive anymore. You're absolutely right. In the West, uneconomical is because of the construction costs. Why is it costing us so much more in the West to build these things than what it costs in Asia? Uh, so, so that's number one. But number two, your, your, your subsidies, uh, you're absolutely right with that as well. But look at wind farms. I can't tell you how often I've looked at uh, a windmill and it's not turning. Like, you know, they spend the money to, 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 you know, appropriate the land, to build the thing, and, and it's not in use. Like, why is that? That can't be economical. I mean, you look at, at a nuclear power plant, it, it'll run 24-7 for you. you like, it, it's like we're trying to convince one another here. <laughs> I think nuclear is the answer. Yeah, look, we're just having some entertainment here. The audience is probably getting bored. Let's move on. Let's talk more uranium. Maybe a little bit more exciting for some people anyway. Uh, I want to bring this one to you and get your thought on it because I know you've considered it and there's been discussion about it. And of course, this is kind of where it gets into, have you done the work? Do you really know what you're talking about in regards to incentive price, et cetera? But Terry, let's use the baseline scenario that uranium prices 
are around that $55 per pound area. Contracting yeah. has started for many of the existing global production centers at that point. They've also, a lot of them have announced intent to restart and plans to restart and are seeking financing to do so. What is your position on the existing capacity able to keep up with existing consumption and small increases in demand under this point in time and scenario? Well, that's a great question. And I, I think that uh, much smarter people than I have done better work than I've done on that. For example, Alkin and Chilari, I think they're really the go-to people uh, with regards to you know providing a, a very accurate answer to that question. But the way I see it is that Casa Tomprom has said that by 2030, the consumption, in order to meet consumption, we're going to need two more Kazatom proms. So when you consider that they, you know, they produce about 60 million pounds of uranium a year. Uh, so we're going to need 120 million more pounds of production because uh, some of the actual production will start coming offline at the end of the uh, 2020s, uh, early 2030s. I mean, Cigar Lake, uh, people were talking about 2028. However, uh, you know, we've, we've kept some pounds in the ground last year because of COVID and they're still not in production right now. So, you know, we might, that might be extended further in, in, into the future. So the way, the way I see it is that uh, the first, the smarter utilities that are going to come to the contracting table they'll be able to scoop up the cheaper pounds, like you said, you know, the upper 40s, the $50 pounds, they'll be able to scoop those up. So a company like Cameco, they'll get, and Kazatom Prom, their order books will be filled first. But once their order books are filled, I mean, they can't, they can't magically make uranium appear. They can't, you know, they can't try to turn on the knobs in MacArthur River and Cigar Lake so to make them produce 25 and 30 million pounds of uranium a year just because they want to. It's just, it's just not going to happen. So there's still going to be a shortage in production. At that time is when I think the, the, uh, the like medium cost projects are going to come online. And uh, but these medium cost pro projects, I, I also think that they won't be able to when they come online, it won't be enough to meet consumption. And and that's listen, when 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 I'm talking about this here, I'm talking about actual consumption uh, where I'm not factoring in, uh, you know, uh, nuclear reactors that might have life extensions of 10 and 20 years. I'm not factoring in small modular reactors coming in. I'm not factoring in more Japanese restarts. Uh, and, and by the way, I don't think Alkin and Chileri are, are either. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, base kind of uh, base projections here, base consumption pre projections. So I think that sometime uh, in, you know, after 2025, 26, 27, I think the price of uranium is going to have to go quite a bit higher. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I don't think this bull market is going to be like the 2005-2007 bull market where it's it was a, like a you know a two three year thing. I think it's going to be longer, uh, especially if China, for example, they came out before Christmas and they 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 changed their their goals out to 2040 and 2060. 
with regards to carbon emissions and and if they follow through on what they said now i i can't remember the exact numbers andrew i'm sorry but you know they're going to have to build a lot more nuclear reactors to be able to meet those ambitious targets so if that happens um this is going to be a longer prolonged bull market than than some people think so I, I'm I'm thinking that the price of uranium is going to have to go into the, you know, seventy-five, eighty dollar, hundred dollar, maybe even more than a hundred dollars to be able to at some point in time incentivize these new mines that are going to have to come online to be able to meet demand. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, good points. If you've gone through and you've pulled out every production center and you've looked at what they could theoretically produce nameplate, et cetera, which nameplate again is a goal to be sought by everybody. Rarely do they get there. I mean, look at HUSAB, still not yeah. there. Yeah. After years and years and years, nameplate's never been reached. And yeah. the fact is, is a lot of these won't get to their nameplate. A lot of them have already been high graded. You know, you talk about MacArthur cigar, you know, those are at the tail end of their life. That is not uh, so important and certainly will not be so important going forward. When you factor in all those and all the restarts, Kazataprom, Cameco, et cetera, and then you get into some of the other, the small projects, when you add all those together, those actually add up to be a nice number, not a lot, but when you add them all together by themselves, they're meaningless, but when you add them together, they show a little bit. You know, the fact of the matter is, is when you do that, all of those restarts, call it 55, 60, 65 bucks, whatever it might be. Some will start early um, because they're trigger happy. And so all of that will happen. But at that price point, a lot of things have already gone right for the sector. The bottom line of it is you have to build select key new projects to be able to get back to the existing consumption level. Now, that doesn't even consider the fact that if these utilities are going to use any historic benchmarks for how they restock their inventory, then you can throw that on top of the existing consumption problem. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. Restocking, not not only the utilities, but yeah. but the producers as well, like Cameco and Casatonfam, they need to restock. So when you add all that together, you know, a lot of things have gone right. Some of these uh, bigger projects, you know, the the short mine life, big production proposed projects doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But nonetheless, those particular projects have such a long lead time that people really fail to see that. And the long lead time, again, by the time that actually happens, a lot of things, again, have already gone right for that to even happen. The longer this stays suppressed, though, Terry, back to your other point, you know, the longer it stays suppressed and people don't catch it, we could have an explosive move. I, I've been saying over and over and over, yeah. when I got into this in, into this uh, play or, or this sector, you know, I was telling everybody, I think three to five years, what I was hoping earlier. And then we had Section 232, Nuclear Fuel Working Group, Russian, Russian Suspension Agreement. It was just delayed, 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 delayed. And it, yeah, it's frustrating to, to be patient and waiting on the sidelines. But man, the longer it's taking, the better it's getting. Yeah, that's right. And some of those extra curveballs have extended the time frame, I would say, by a minimum of a year and a half. There's a lot of people that are fairly, you know, unhappy with us. I mean, even we had a five-year time frame in 2017, you know, I'll have a lot of egg on my face after May of 2022. That's okay, though, because, again, 
<laughs> because you're early, it's such a rounding error. It just doesn't matter. The payoff yeah. is so impressive that five years of waiting in retrospect is nothing. And in the meantime, we've been in other sectors that don't have near as good fundamentals, gold, copper, silver. I mean, look, I like the fundamentals. It works, but I can tell you it's nothing close to what is clearly visible in the uranium sector if you've actually done the work. I just can't see, I, I'm trying to find another sector. I'm talking to you know, different people, trying to see, okay, what, what would be the next sort of same kind of scenario or setup that we're seeing in uranium? And I, I, I just don't see one. No, there's not. And, and you don't need to go looking because we have one right in front of us. Now, it does make sense for purposes of wealth preservation. Now, of course, I'm a fan of things like gold and silver, and I like what copper has going yes. for it. There's really good projects. There's discovery. There's always upside there. There is yes. production. There's cash flows. There's things that can be done. I'm not saying you can't go over in the gold, silver, and copper markets and make 10, 20x. That can happen and much more than that. But yeah, yeah. you don't need to get too fancy when you have uranium staring you in the face saying, look, this is clear. This is uh, as silly as it gets. Go ahead and allocate a lot to that because if you've done the work, you're happy to allocate in mountains versus someone who comes along who doesn't know anything about the sector might take a one, two percent of their portfolio position. But once you understand it and you've actually done the work, go ahead and step in big because you know what needs to happen. You've set it up and, and the mathematics back that up. And I want to just move on here with asking you over the years, how have you now structured yourself personally in terms of your portfolio of uranium? Um, what's your equity strategy at this point? Well, I've never made it a, a secret. I'm 100% uranium. And what I've done is, as, as, I, was, as I was explaining to you, um, I, I've positioned, uh, I've gotten out of the producers uh, although I, I do have uh, two producers that are not producing right now, uh, two U.S. producers in my portfolio. They're not the majority of my portfolio. I've got developers in, in Africa, and I've got uh, a developer in Canada, and, but the majority of my portfolio is in the, in the juniors in the Athabasca Basin. You know, I, I, I'll take a look at the Australian uh, juniors and I'll try to position myself to take uh, a few positions in companies there. But as I was saying, you know, like I don't want to have too many positions in my portfolio because as, you know, I, I, I just find that, uh, you know, having too many uh, becomes cumbersome. I want to I want to simplify my my portfolio to be able to make uh, quicker decisions and faster moves if, if if I need to. Makes sense. I mean, there's the production ready folks that do make some sense for some of that various jurisdictions. The developers, I really think, are more of the sweet spot. Tend to be more towards developers in various jurisdictions. Heavy duty optionality plays, and you can get that via explorers. You can get that via high cost developers, etc. But there's a lot to be said about mix of jurisdiction. The mix of jurisdiction is key. Good history with uranium mining. You know, there's only a handful of places on the globe that makes sense. Politically stable jurisdictions. There are those in Africa. Those do exist in Africa. And then, of course, you go back to your places like Canada and Australia and the U.S. Uh, strong history and being able to do, you know, uranium mining. The jurisdictional component and the stage of the company makes sense. Some producers obviously make sense from a cash flow standpoint, and they also will be first to get the love if you have them on good exchanges. 
that also helps in terms of liquidity. So I think that that also is a key part, and we've you know tried to mimic that with our fairly concentrated portfolio. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do you see as far as you know extra strategy out there, points in time in the future, and different circumstances that you might see it's worth taking some money off the table. So I've been thinking about this a lot, and uh, I was talking to you about my cousin just a little while ago, Chris Bure. We've been talking about that as well. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm actually going to take a little bit out of the uh, the Smith Weekly playbook. You know, you've got your primary, your secondary con- uh, considerations. So, and, and I'm going to give a shout out to Trader Ferg there. He's got a blog where he's talking about the monkey trap. Uh, you know, you want to get the best returns as possible, but if you wait too long, you might you might not get anything. So I look at it, my, my first uh, sort of exercise and exit strategy was to keep looking at my portfolio and uh, treating it, you know, like, uh, like, like my garden, you know, and uh, tending to the, to the plants and, and making sure that uh, everything's still, still working with each one of those plants or, or each one of my positions. So I, I pared down my positions and I, and I changed the focus of my portfolio. That was the first thing I, I did. But I also, I'm also going to look at macro, micro, and sort of uh, social behaviors. Um, so on the macro side is, you know, what are the fundamentals telling us? What's happening in the sector, like you were saying? Uh, you know, is demand increasing? Are we having, you know, did, is it? Did we have an accident? God forbid. Uh, you know, looking at all of those factors, are the fundamentals still there? Are they still sound? Uh, on the micro side, it's the it's individual companies. What's happening in those companies? Like, I mean, if you're a junior explorer, you know, you're looking for the stuff, you're not finding it. Uh, the market's not responding. You know, at some point in time, you need to. You can't fall in love with these positions. You need to be able to uh, let them go. So, looking at uh, you know, and then. You know, uh, one of the reasons why I, I'm also focused on the junior explorers is that there's significant um, upside potential if they make a discovery. Uh, we've seen that in one specific Athabasca name uh, in the past uh, couple of years where, uh, you know, it's been one of my best performers. So, you know, if you can get in uh, before pre-discovery, then the upside potential it could, could be tremendous. And if you look at some of these junior explorers in the bear market, like for example, NextGen or Fission, ISO Energy, when they made their discovery in a bear market, I mean, the returns were were fantastic. Uh, So I can just imagine what the returns would be in a bull market should one of these juniors like uh, hit something important here and, and make a really important discovery and have a nice size deposit, then, uh, you know, if one of these can, can hit, then that, that's, going to, that's going to do very well. So, I'm, you know, so I'm looking at those macro and micro factors. And when I talk about the social behavior, you know, I think that Trader Ferg uh, says, says it well in his blog. And I've actually experienced this in, in different uh, sectors before, like I said, in, in the dot-com bubble, you know, like when everybody starts talking about you know, uh, hey, you know, I remember in the 1990s, um, a lot of people listening here won't remember this, but that's when Internet started. And, uh, you know, everybody, not everybody, but many people now have their own trading platform. Well, back then there was only one or two and it was brand spanking new. 
But I remember back then, a lot of people that I knew that knew nothing about investing at all, they would just like through their own trading account buy any dot com or, or, or um, technology IPO. And these IPOs would go four or five times. They'd increase four or five times on opening day. And everybody thought they were a genius. So when I see some of these factors happening, uh, same thing happened with the cannabis market here in Canada. Uh, you know, had you invested in cannabis six years ago, eight years ago, you you, you would have made a killing. But, you know, so at a, a certain point in time, like about two, three years ago, then people, everybody around me started talking about investing in cannabis, investing in cannabis. Well, that's, that's going to be an indication to me. And uh, my exit strategy is going to depend. But what I'm thinking of doing is, is slowly taking, you know, money off the table when I see some of these considerations, as you mentioned them, starting to happen. You know, if I think that one company, and I've set targets uh, for, for, for each of my companies. So, you know, I think it could be, give me, you know, a, a three bagger, a five bagger, 10 bagger, 20 bagger. When these companies, each of these companies reaches the targets, I look at where we are, are in the macro scheme of things, and then maybe slowly start to sell maybe 10% of that position, 20%, 50%. It's going to depend at that time but also rely on, on you know, uh, reliable sources uh, like you, like different people in the sector, like uh, people in my group. We need to bounce ideas off each other. And uh, so, so basically really take a kind of an active approach where monitoring the situation closely and then making decisions on individual positions and, and uh, you know, exiting slowly when uh, I think it's going to be the right time. Much easier said than done. Yes. Uh, we're not going to be perfect, and none of us will be. None of us will be. Now, there'll be right. some that reclaim that they true. were perfect. But the fact is, is, we're going to make mistakes along the way. We're going to do our best here to try to make the right decisions. And, of course, we'll be able to do the measuring sticks after the fact and figure out how that went. But I think you bring up a, a lot of solid points on various components to consider. We just need to be flexible and, and have a view as we move here and see how the events unfold and try to make adjustments along the way. And that's why we've put together as some guidelines that we have to be flexible and we have to have some reconsiderations uh, during the process. Because the bottom line of it is, and you brought it up too, is discovery in a bear market and a bull market, they both work. Now, discovery in a bear market is generally capped, as we've seen, and it doesn't necessarily matter in uranium or copper or gold or whatever you can still do multiples on discovery, irrespective of market conditions. On the other side, you know, we've seen net present value go astronomically above where we think it should go. And it's not necessarily with uranium stocks, but also, you know, copper stocks, gold stocks. I mean, there's one company in particular that doubled in a half of what we think the net present value should be, which points out that there's a lot of assumptions that go into this. But in addition to that, the market can get over rewarding uh, expectations can grow very high and they can be priced beyond perfection so we've also got to keep that in mind too as we move here and take a look at what those values are relative to the macro conditions in the market you know what is the price of uranium last contracted what's the supply demand setup look like you know what has been restarted what has been permitted there's going to be a lot to it, Terry, but uh, I think we've got a grip on what we need to do going forward. I just want to clarify one thing, uh, just so the audience understands. How about your commitment to the uranium thesis via capital at risk? 
how much of your total investment portfolio is allocated to uranium here? 100%. That's good to point out because, uh, and you're also of a risk tolerance given your age. I mean, well, you retired early, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, but uh, yeah, I need to preface that, okay? Yes, I'm retired. My wife and I uh, both have income that, you know, sufficient income so my investment portfolio is basically it's not money that that i need to live on here uh it's you know like we we both have a really nice pension uh we're, we're in a very uh, secure um healthy financial situation so uh, i can afford to take a little bit more risk in being in, in only one sector now the the price i'm paying for being in only one sector is that you know uh is the opportunity cost of of being in other sectors that have out really performed very well uh in 2017 18 19 and the the first uh three quarters of uh 2020 where had i allocated capital in other sectors i would have i would have uh, you know seen healthy returns now what made up for that fact of being in only one sector is that in december of 2020 I mean, the, the gains were, you know, 120 to 150% the, uh, the portfolio in one month. And yesterday, I don't know if you liked your day yesterday in uranium, but uh, yesterday was another good day. That's important to point out that some other sectors along the way here have definitely paid for some of our deployment into uranium thesis over time. We certainly had a, an assumption that it was going to take some time to play out and that allocation should be you know, slow and steady. And that happened to be correct along the way here. I think it's pretty clear over here definitely that uh, uranium is by far the largest allocation, substantial 50 plus percent, yeah. you know, not 100 percent like yourself. But as you said, you can also come out and say, well, look, my performance has been this in this amount of time. And again, this yeah. is all generally rounding errors. None of this has really started to move. If you think what you've received in uranium thus far is, is anything indicative, it's really not. I mean, you can go collect the same thing over in, you know, silver, gold, copper, et cetera. Those areas, depending on how you've done your selections, those areas have done quite well been a little bit choppy since 2016, but there have been some nice performance profiles over there if you've been careful and at this point in those sectors. But uh, at the same time, we've rolled over and continued to plow into uranium and continue to write checks. And so I think that that also is important here. Well, good on you. It's, that's excellent. And certainly this is not for the rent money, but uh, for mm -hmm. folks who have an income and are able to continue to deploy and add to their holdings, uh, I think that makes sense here. It's still accumulation stages. I just wanted to, to, to clarify, you know, like it, it makes sense for me with my style and what I understand in the sector to be 100% in uranium. I mean, it's it, almost no one would ever would ever suggest to be only in one sector. Like, you know, you listen to anybody, they, they always talk about diversification in different sectors and different, you know, but for me, 100% in uranium works for me. Yeah, it's a fantastic setup. There's other performance profiles out there, uh, as I've mentioned, and then there's other places, you know, there's there's some likability to things like coal, things like oil, and, and a number of other couple right. sectors in the natural resource sector that make sense. But when you go back and you go back to the table and say, okay, now let's really do a, a real hard comparison of what can happen here, how the math looks behind each one of these. Well, I tell you, uranium, it's hard to pass up. So again, 
while I'd like to look more heavy at oil and other sectors, yeah. you come back to the performance profile, you come back to your knowledge of the sector, and after you've right. done some data and you've put together some sound information sufficiently to be able to form a, an informed view, you continue to come back and you say, well, you know, look, it's, it's worth continuing to support this thesis because it makes by far the most sense. And that concentration to me makes a lot of sense. And again, if you've done your homework and you've done the data and you've actually come to your own conclusions before checking against others or in parallel checking against others, you know, I might allocate 70 cents on the dollar towards uranium and, and allocate that other 30 cents somewhere else, or maybe just leave it in cash. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right. Well, Terry, um, to wrap up here, best way for the audience to connect with you and any closing words for the audience? Best way to communicate with me is uh, on Twitter. They can direct message me. Uh, you provided with my, uh, my Twitter uh, account. So I guess last words is the setup is looking very good. I think that 2021, I was never able to say this before, but I think that 2021, everything is lining up fairly good. You know, we haven't even, in December, we saw a really good uh, run on uranium prices. And as you said, it hasn't even really started. Like it, this was just like the first pitch of the first inning. And uh, the, the spot price hasn't even moved. And this was December. And then in December, you know, Chemical announces that they have to temporarily shut down Cigar Lake again, and it's still down. Each month that Cigar Lake is down is less material, you know, on the market. Uh, it's more material that will need to be removed from the spot market, the secondary supply. It's more pressure on the utilities to come back to the contracting table. So I'm, look, I'm really happy and confident with what's happening in the uranium space. And I think 2021 is going to be the start of what we've all, all been waiting for uh, in the uranium sector. So I hope I'm right and uh, stay tuned. And that'll be kind of a short-term indicator, Terry, on how that goes you know, when Cameco announces this, uh, this cigar restart. Will the stock go up or will it sell off? I mean, if it sells off, it's just one more short-term sentiment indicator that uh, to me is probably a nice little opportunity to potentially buy after that announcement if it does sell off. However, if uh, they do announce a restart and the stock goes up, then I think people are starting to understand that uh, even with Cigar Lake producing a few pounds, it doesn't change anything. So we'll see what happens. But again, that's just short-term noise in a bigger uh, picture, but fantastic setup here and happy to be along for the ride. Well, Terry, thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate you coming on and sharing your views with us here and good chat and want to wish you luck out there and take care. Yeah, you too, Andrew. Thanks for the opportunity.